Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. So how many of you guys have seen this book before? Everything men know about women. And on the inside, it's completely blank. It's a legit book. It's 120 pages. And the funniest thing I think about this is when I was looking it up on Amazon, they've actually released a 25th anniversary edition, and it still maintains a 4.5 star out of 5 star rating to this day. <laughs> so it's just blank page, uh, pages. And I'm not here to pick on women or men, but the reason there's humor to this is because it hits close to home. There's some truth to it. Kind of that we don't know what's going on, and as soon as we think we figured it out, it's gone. And actually, this past year, for our 10-year anniversary, I made Amanda a bunch of cards, and one for each month, and it was a different date idea and activity that we would do together. And the card for December was that I was gonna take her to the Nutcracker, because that's what her and her mom always did every December, and I said, see, I do listen. She said, my mom and I don't do that every December. She's like, maybe I went there once. And I'm like, what? I thought I had this one figured out. But you've probably even experienced it when you took off to school or finished high school or went to college or university. You kind of come out thinking like, okay, I'm going to understand everything. At least I kind of went in there thinking that naively. I, I did a one-year Bible certificate way back when. And, and I remember thinking, after I do this one-year Bible certificate, I'm going to know the Bible. And you come out of there, and you're just like, your head's swimming, and you're like, there is a lot more to know. So then I went off to university years later and did Christianity and culture, and again, I kind of, I wasn't quite as naive, but I still thought, I'm going to know a lot more. And, and I did know more than when I went in, but still, you kind of come out, and you're left with this, there is so much that I do not know. And for those of you who've seen the movie Frozen 2, uh, there's even a cute song that uh, Olaf sings. He's walking through an enchanted forest, and it's when I, when I get older. And he says, this whole thing will make sense when I'm older. And no, it won't make sense, because you're going through an enchanted forest. So the point I'm trying to get to, though, is that I want to wrestle with this paradox tonight. And the paradox is knowing God means letting go of what you know. And I believe this is important for us to understand because if we don't get this, we're going to keep doing our will while claiming it's God's will. Knowing God means letting go of what you know. You see, if your God has the same opinion, same thoughts, same dreams, same vision, same political party as you, you're probably not worshiping God. <laughs> knowing God means letting go of what we know. And where this really hits home for me is even just understanding where we're at as a church. Because I've mentioned several times here before that I have a vision, I have a dream that I would love to see happen in Binbrook. But if I were to kind of say, this is God's vision, no, it's not. It's my vision. Because I know God hasn't actually said, yeah, this is what I want you to do in Binbrook. What God has shown me to do is, okay, I want you to have worship services. I want you to, con to, to begin building a church community. I want you guys to ground yourselves in my word. 
And he's kind of just showing me one step at a time, which sometimes I'm like, I wish I could come out with this grandiose vision, but he hasn't revealed that to me just yet. So I, I need to be careful of what I claim to be God's and when it's just mine. A professor back in my seminary days, he once told me the most dangerous person to society is the irregular or occasional church attender. And why? Because they have a little bit of head knowledge and no accountability. And I thought, wow. I thought it was profound at the time, and it still rings true today, that we can get this little bit of knowledge and we can kind of run with it. And when we're disconnected from the body, from our brothers and sisters and other believers, and we have no accountability, we can do a lot of damage with that little bit of knowledge. So again, knowing God means letting go of what we know. And as we looked at last week, I believe this is why Jesus told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they received the power of the Holy Spirit. Because he knew that the disciples would be tempted to go out and start spreading the news of Jesus' resurrection and ascension and that this new kingdom's coming without fully knowing God, without fully understanding his will and what he had in store. And that's why they even asked him questions. Is the time come now to restore Israel, to kind of claim our nationalism? And he's saying, wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Holy Spirit. The disciples, too, had to learn that knowing God meant letting go of what they knew or what they understood. So how do we do this? How did they do this? And it begins, I believe, with our posture, a posture of humility, surrender, and obedience. Even a hu humility is another example where you kind of, as soon as you know you have it, it's gone. Imagine writing it down on your resume, and I excel with humility, and like, what? <laughs> but it begins with this posture of humility, of surrender, open hands, and then obedience. And we need to have an open-mindedness, an open-handedness with God, because I believe as soon as we kind of tighten our grip and we say, this is what God wants, we've suddenly put God in a box. And as we'll see time and time again, God is so much bigger than any box we can put him in. And in Acts, we have God beginning something new, and you and I are invited to participate. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to flip with me to Acts chapter 1. And we're going to be starting in verse 9, and it's going to be on the screen behind me as well. But I'm going to read verses 9 to 14. So after saying this, Jesus was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them, the disciples. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of about a half mile or 0.8 kilometers. When they arrived, they went up to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Not to be confused with Judas Iscariot. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer. 
along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. So the first thing they did when they got back was they went upstairs to where they were staying and they prayed. They realized they weren't going to figure this one out on their own. However, in order to understand the power of prayer, I want to do a little bit of overlap with where I was last week because I felt like I didn't fully articulate what I was wanting to as it relates to the ascension. So in verse 9, it says that Jesus was taken up into a cloud and that they could no longer see him. So first of all, the reality is this, that heaven in the Bible is God's space. And earth is our space. So heaven isn't just this happy place where God's people go when they die. And it's also not our home if by that you mean our eventual eventual destiny is to leave this earth altogether and go to heaven instead. Now, this might be a new idea for you because that's certainly not the tradition I was raised in. I was raised in such a way that I didn't understand why people would care for the earth because I'm thinking this place is going to burn up anyways and we're getting out of here. But again, what you'll see time and time again in the Bible is God's plan is for a new heavens and new earth but for them to be joined together in the once and for all renewal. It's about these two realities, this God space and our space actually coming together, being renewed, being joined together. And I think this is so important to understand, especially as we look at the importance of prayer, because once we grasp that heaven isn't a location within our cosmos of space and time and matter situated somewhere up in the sky that we can eventually get to if we build a big enough rocket ship, then we'll begin to understand that heaven and earth are two interlocking spheres of God's reality. And that Jesus is the first and so far only person which is fully or who is fully at home in both. And I believe this should excite us for a time when everything will be renewed, that we actually get to participate in this renewing of all things as, as Jesus is bringing heaven and earth together, and we get to participate in his kingdom and in that renewal. So the point of this event and the explanation is to indicate that Jesus wasn't heading out somewhere beyond the moon or beyond, beyond Mars or wherever we might think but he was entering God's space, God's dimension. So in the Old Testament, which the readers and the disciples of Acts would have picked up on, is that God was present with Israel in the cloud, in the, the pillar of cloud and fire as the people of Israel wandered throughout the desert or the cloud and the smoke that filled the temple when God became suddenly present in a new way. So what's happening here is that Jesus has gone into God's dimension of reality, but he'll be back on the day when that dimension and our present one are brought together once and for all. And this is what we mean when we say that Jesus will come again, and we talk about the second coming. It's this togetherness. And it's a promise that covers all of Christian history from then right up to today. 
But another thing that's happening, and this is my favorite part of what's happening, is that many of the original readers would have known that when a Roman emperor died, it had become kind of customary for someone to say that they saw their soul rising into heaven. And the reason that kind of became customary is because then you would say, well, my, my father has become a god. So then for you to be heir to the throne could kind of get to claim to be a son of God. You would say, well, my, my dad's soul went up into heaven, so he's become a god. Now I'm the son of God. But what Luke is doing here in such an amazing way is that he makes it clear that it's not Jesus' soul that ascended into heaven, but his whole renewed bodily complete self. He's pretty much making it known that Jesus is upstaging all of your Roman emperors. Because, yeah, their soul might have gone up. His body went up into God's dimension. And I believe that this is going to be a theme that we're going to continue to see again and again as we journey through Acts. That Jesus is the reality and that they're just a parody. So the importance of what the disciples are doing is that they're tapping into this heavenly reality through prayer. They're, they're entering into God's space in worship and in prayer. And it's through prayer that these ordinary, messy, deeply human beings found that their story is bound up with the story of what Jesus is continuing to do and teach through the Holy Spirit in and through them. So from the ascension onwards, the story of Jesus' followers, including us, takes place in both dimensions. You see, it's through prayer and worship that we too can know, enjoy, and be energized by the life of heaven right here on earth. That's the power of prayer. I know sometimes we treat it like a gumball machine or the lucky rabbit's foot, but we actually get to tap in to this heavenly reality to this other dimension. The power of the resurrection isn't just that it was a miracle that he came back to life, but also that Jesus was ushering in this new kingdom, a new reality, a new way of living for those who believe in him and who are filled with his spirit. But like the disciples, we have to let go of what we know in order to know God more fully, to know his will and his ways. So they knew in order to understand God that this thing that was happening, they needed to pray together. But then it goes on to show us what else they did. So I'm going to pick up now in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 15. So it says, During this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. Brothers, he said, the scriptures had, been, had to be fulfilled concerning Judas who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit speaking through King David. Judas was one of us and shared in the ministry with us. Judas had bought a field with the money he received for his treachery. Falling headfirst there, his body split open, spilling out all his intestines. The news of his death spread to all the people of Jerusalem, and they gave the place the Aramaic name, Akeldama, which means field of blood. Peter continued, this was written in the book of Psalms where it says, let his home become desolate with no one living in it. It also says, let someone else take his position. 
So now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus. From the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us, whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Bersabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they all prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry, for he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other eleven. The natural question that comes up once you begin praying together is what do we do now? What's God calling us to do? And I'm sure this is how the apostles must have first felt. What are we supposed to do now? And there's probably this sense of wanting to run out and tell people about Jesus right away to, to let them know about his resurrection and ascension. There's probably also some fear after having just witnessed Jesus' execution that, hey, the same people that kind of put Jesus on the cross... I don't think they'll think twice about coming after us. But then there were also the instructions that Jesus left them with. That was to wait in Jerusalem for God's power to come on them before going off to do what had to be done. But here's the problem they faced right from the get-go. There were supposed to be 12 disciples, but only 11 of them were left. Because Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, was now dead. So how could they model and symbolize God's plan for Israel and the world if they were one person short? You see, the reason there were 12 disciples was to symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were to symbolize the restoration of Israel, that Jesus was restoring Israel. But how could they do this with just 11 disciples? So did they just have to stay like that? And if not, what should they do about it? So as with everything that happened with the, in the early church, they went to two sources for instruction. One was prayer, which we've already talked about, but the second is they went to the Word of God. They, they had the Jewish Bible, which for us is the Old Testament, because they're actually living out the New Testament that's going to get recorded later. So they had the Jewish Bible, and they too understood it to be living and active, God, God breathed and inspired. It wasn't just a record of what God had said long ago, but it was this huge story revealing God's plan, his purposes, and full of signposts pointing forward. So as they, be, as they began to pray together, they began to go to the word of God and they began to see the seeds of what had been planted earlier now beginning to emerge in their midst. So while they're faced with the question of how their friend could go so wrong, they approached the word of God to look for the answers, and they re remained united together in prayer. And soon they began to see within, within Scripture, and within the Psalms particularly, that it spoke of a time when God's people and God's true king would be opposed by a traitor within their midst, a close friend. And while they didn't necessarily find this exact roadmap for where they were, we hardly ever get that within Scripture, they found the clues that enabled them to see how to feel their way forward in this new and unprecedented time. 
So in other words, they began to see within the Psalms that it was not only necessary, but it was actually proper for them to find a replacement for Judas. So they began to be encouraged by the fact that God's plan hadn't gone horribly wrong, but in fact, the tragedy of Judas was actually held within this strange, dark, overarching purpose of God. And for those of you who might know the Gospel of Matthew, they talk about Judas's death as a suicide. But whether it was a suicide, as Matthew talks about, or whether it was the sudden violent onset of a fatal disease, as Luke suggests, the fact was that Judas was no longer among them. They didn't feel the need to tidy things up, and I don't think we need to go there either. But the bottom line was this. They could only make sense of this through a scriptural sense. As they sought to discern what their next steps were, they began to develop the scriptural, biblical sense of direction. And I believe that's the point that Luke wants us to grasp here. How are we anchoring ourselves in the Word of God, in Scripture, in order to find our way and our sense of direction in the world? And so the disciples did what they did in the light of Scriptures and in the context of prayer, and they chose Matthias. And they would actually say, God chose Matthias. Because while it might seem like this simple and straightforward approach, we shouldn't focus too much on that because we'll see later on in Acts, a major rift comes between them. I think what Luke is rather wanting us to focus on is the fact that God knows the heart of every person. So one last aspect of this passage that I don't want us to overlook is this. As they prayed and as they studied scripture, they did it together. They gathered together. There's a new trend happening and more and more people are saying, I don't really need to go to church. But there's something that we miss when we're not gathering together in Jesus' name. Church is bigger than you and I. Kerry Newhoff, a pastor over in Barrie, he says this, you don't go to church, you are the church. But the you in you are the church is plural, not singular. Church is bigger than you. And it reminds me of the book of Philippians where all the yous in that, past, in that book are plural. So when it says you should rejoice, it's saying you all should rejoice. And that's the church. When, when we talk about you are the church, you don't go to church, you are the church, it's saying you all are the church. It's bigger than you and I. You see, it's not written to an individual, but it's written to a community of believers, followers of Jesus who are gathering together regularly. So as much as, yes, we need to go out and be the church beyond these walls, I also believe we need to cultivate the spiritual discipline of gathering together as the church in order to pray together, study scripture together for encouragement, for edification, for accountability. It's important how the disciples saw themselves as the continuation of Jesus' work. And it's important how we too see ourselves so if you see yourself in isolation from the rest of the community, and it's just like, this is great, it's just me and Jesus, you might need to ask if you're actually part of the church. Gathering together as the church isn't a matter of earning anything, 
but it's a matter of shaping our heart, our priorities. It's saying, yes, this is important for my spiritual health and my development. So while the trend of people moving away from church, or while there is a trend of people moving away from church, we have to stop and ask ourselves, are my current patterns leading me to a greater devotion to Jesus? You see, anonymity, church surfing, watching church online as your sole way of church, these are just a few things that simply aren't church. I know I, I struggled with this more out in BC because everyone seemed to love just getting out in nature and snowboarding, skiing, surfing, and, and they're just like, oh, nature is my church. I'm like, God will speak to you through nature. You can meet with God in nature, and, and God can speak to you through so many ways, but that's not church. Church is bigger than you and I, but it is about you and I coming together, serving, inviting, giving, and helping make new disciples of Jesus Christ. The mission that's given to all churches is to become a movement, making known the love and the hope of Jesus. So our mission as a church, at the back, it says making Jesus known, seeing lives change, change transforming our community. We learn to be the church as we gather together as the church. And that's why seize the 167, there's 168 hours in the week. And we come together, together for that one hour in order to support one another, challenge one another, encourage one another to go out and make Jesus' name known. So let me ask you to just reflect on these few questions. Are my current patterns leading me to greater devotion to Jesus? Am I serving, inviting, giving, and helping make new disciples? And last, have I made this about me, or is it about seeing the kingdom of God flourish and expand around me? As we go out and we seize the 167 this week, I encourage you, again, similar to last week, to set aside 167 minutes, or 167 seconds per day, which is just shy of three minutes. And my challenge this week for those 167 seconds is to pray, recognize that you're tapping into this heavenly reality right here on earth. And then also read scripture. I'd encourage you to set aside 267 blocks, but if you join it together, at least it's a start. Read scripture and seek the heart of God. Seek his direction. And then let's gather together again next week as we continue to learn what it looks like to follow Jesus every hour of the week. We have the power to tap into heaven, to, to bring heaven to earth, to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. We have access. We're promised power. We're being invited, called, asked, however you want to put it, to participate in the kingdom of heaven here on earth, and more specifically, right here in Binbrook. How cool is that? Let's continue to seize the 167 until we meet again.